Well, morning all, it is really, really good to be with you. If I look wet, it's because I've just managed to spill water all down myself. And if there's some, one thing you should never do when you're speaking, it's have a drink just before you're about to speak. A few weeks back, I managed to spill uh, black coffee over some beige-colored trousers. You can imagine uh, how ridiculous that looks. So I stayed locked behind the lectern, which, unlike here, you can't actually see through. But hey, there we go. Well, I wanted to this morning come and share something with you about um, the early church. When I imagine the early church, when I read the stories of the early church as it's captured in the book of Acts, um, there's no doubt, is there, that the early church was a church who were faithful, who were transformative, who were pioneering, who were prayerful, a church who were courageous, a church who were generous, a church who were mission-minded. What great words to describe what the church should be, arguably what every church should be. This is a rhetorical question, so don't shout out the answer. It could be embarrassing. I wonder what words you would use to describe yourselves here at Waypoint. Maybe some of those words would feature in your thinking. From what we've just heard, it's very clear that you're mission-minded. It's very clear that you're generous. Uh, It's very clear that you have a desire uh, that people should come to know and love Jesus. When I think about the early church, I often think to myself, wow, wouldn't it have been amazing to have been part of that early church? Can you imagine yourself there for a moment? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in power, tongues of fire, people speaking in languages which weren't their own and they could uh, be understood as interpretation was brought. Think for a moment about Peter's great sermon following uh, Pentecost. He gave the preach of his life as he explained that Jesus was Lord and Messiah. He pointed out how all the Old Testament prophecies uh, were fulfilled with Jesus, who was God, come uh, with skin on. And then Peter calls for repentance, and the response is amazing. 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. Now, I would argue that is not a bad day's ministry. I would argue that. And then can you imagine at the end of every single day uh, in the early church, people would come back together having been off out on mission, sharing this good news, and there would be stories of miracles and of healings, of casting out demons, and another few thousand people uh, have become Christians. The gospel in the early church is spreading rapidly throughout the known world, and churches are being planted all over the place. Wow, what a time to have lived and what a time to have loved Jesus. Do you think it would have been fun uh, to be part of that early church when all that was happening? That's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, I think it would be. But for just a moment, can you spare a thought for the leaders of those churches? Because I expect it would have been an absolute nightmare as they were busy trying to manage persecution and opposition, as they were dealing with all the cultural and religious differences that existed there and then, doctrinal disputes every other day, the influence of pagan practices starting to come into this new church. And can you imagine trying to manage that church without church suite? What an impossibility. Sorry, Peter, we've got another 500 people who are needing to join a small group. Could you sort that out by next week? Uh, Paul, really sorry, there's 600 people who need a baptismal class. And it makes me wonder, what did these church leaders do in their spare time? Well, as we join the story today, we're going to join it in Acts chapter 17. And uh, Paul is now on his second uh, missionary trip, as it's become, and he's, he's teamed up with Silas and with Timothy In Acts chapter 16, just to give you some context, they've just seen the joy of Lydia coming to faith in Jesus, and they find themselves doing some time in prison, having baptized her. 
you know, I'm really grateful you don't have to do time in prison every time you have a baptism. We'd have done a few uh, months in prison over the last few weeks. And then there's this violent earthquake. Uh, They end up getting freed, and the magistrate says that they've been wrongly arrested. And as all this is happening, a jailer asks a question, and I want to suggest to you this is a brilliant question. And if you've never asked this question in your life, I encourage you to ask it. He says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? In other words, what must I do to find myself in an eternal relationship uh, with God? And Paul and Silas respond. They say, it's incredibly simple. You believe in the Lord Jesus, and then you will be saved. Isn't it easy? You believe in the Lord Jesus, and then you will be saved. As we read on, the jailer, his entire household end up becoming Christians, and guess what happens? They all get baptized. Well, shortly afterwards, there's a a bit of a kerfuffle going on. Paul and team are asked to leave Philippi, and at the early part of Acts chapter 17, they find themselves in this city called Thessalonica, where they did what they did pretty much every time they traveled to a new place. They reasoned, they discussed, they debated with people in the Jewish synagogue. If you've got a Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, We're going to read from verses 2 to 5. Open up the page or switch it on. Uh, Don't worry, if you haven't got one, I'm going to read it to you as well. And it's probably going to come on the screen. Look at that, because your techies are so great. It says, As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Have you ever wondered how you become a prominent woman? It's not a question I've wrestled with, but anyway. A few other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. What an interesting response. In Thessalonica, the Jews become jealous, and then they start a riot, probably because Paul is attracting so much attention and influence in the city, and because he's challenging their religious authority, not to mention the fact that followers were leaving these Jewish leaders to come and follow Paul and gang. Oh dear, jealousy. Jealousy, a problem that has plagued humanity since The fall, I think Adam and Eve have got an awful lot to answer for. And I wonder if you've ever wrestled with jealousy yourself. If you have wrestled with jealousy, then you'll know that that experience of that wrestle, you'll have discovered that jealousy is an emotion that has the power to corrode your relationships. It has the power to erode your sense of contentment or joy in life. In fact, jealousy will pillage you of your joy and it will make you miserable. But jealousy, too, also puts a barrier between us and our relationship with God, and it ruins our relationship with God. Now, jealousy is what caricatures here these Jews in Thessalonica. Now, the good news is they didn't stay like that because uh, of the transformative power of Jesus. This very same city that's uh, described here as being jealous ends up going on, and Paul rejoices over them once they've come to Jesus, and he honors their work of faith. He says their labor of love is amazing, and they're filled with hope-filled expectancy. Jesus can bring change. He can bring transformation into people's lives. But here in Acts chapter 17... 
faced with some closed-fisted hostility in Thessalonica, in verse 10, Paul and Silas leave in the dead of night, and they head to a city called Berea. What a contrast Berea is to Thessalonica. Instead of hostility, in Berea, they're greeted with open-handed hospitality. Let's read on, verse 10, Acts chapter 17. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, guess where they went? To the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did a number of prominent Greek women, there they are again, and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. What is it with these Thessalonians? Why do they love picking a fight? But I wonder if you noticed how the scriptures describe these Berean Jews. It says of these Berean Jews, they were of noble character. They had a noble eagerness, we could say, or perhaps we could say they had an unpretentious yearning. Now, here's my prayer for me today. Lord, would you please make me more like a Berean than a Thessalonian, as they're described here in Acts chapter 17. Lord, I don't want to be someone who's agitated with jealousy about the success of others, especially the success of another church, but Lord, I want to be somebody who grows uh, and, and lives out my faith in the place where you've planted me to be. And as we look at these Berean uh, Jews, I think they're a great example for us as diligent seekers of what we might describe as being capital T truth. From the way that the text describes them, it's very obvious, isn't it, that they had a hunger for truth. In fact, it says they actively engage with the scriptures on a daily basis. On a daily basis, it says of them. Now, I wonder how much more I would be like Jesus if I cultivated what I'm calling a, a Berean heart. What would I be like if I had this Berean heart that dedicated more of my time to the daily study of scriptures and the meditating upon the teachings of the word? Now, I came across a, a great illustration. It was a couple of weeks ago, actually, of what it looks like to, to meditate on Scripture. If any of you use the Lectio app, I thoroughly commend it to you for, for daily Bible reading. It had this thing about what meditating on Scripture looks like. And it says meditating on Scripture is like sucking a hard sweet rather than crunching it. I really like that. Meditating on Scripture is like sucking a hard sweet rather than crunching it. When I suck the sweet, I allow all those flavors of the word to coat my mouth, and I end up fully tasting all the wonderful sweetness. But I have to be honest, sometimes in my Bible reading, I can crunch my way through the text rather than taking the time to absorb what it is I'm reading. I wonder if you can identify with that. The Bereans were suckers of God's word. They were not crunchers. They were really keen to plumb the depths of this teaching that Paul was bringing to them. Here's a question, it's rhetorical. Are you a sucker or a cruncher? Didn't expect to be asked that this morning in church, did you? Now, I don't know about you, but maybe this morning you're feeling like me, really challenged to develop this Berean hunger for, for God's truth, to develop this willingness to question, to search, to, to seek answers more deeply to the things of my faith. 
That's where my spirit comes alive, is when I get intimate with Jesus. My spirit comes alive when I choose to draw closer. My spirit comes alive when I chase after God more, when I seek to go deeper, when I find myself walking in in the things of God, when I'm anchored, when I'm not just floating adrift. Now, whilst these Berean followers were, uh, Jews rather, were were busy pursuing intimate relationship with God, out of uh, religious, uh, jealous religiosity, some of these Thessalonian Jews are out and about, they're agitating trouble, and they're causing trouble. So in Thessalonica, Paul and team discover agitating jealousy. In Berea, they find noble eagerness, unpretentious earning. Next stop, Athens. I mean, who doesn't like a nice holiday uh, in Greece? Is Athens in Greece? Yeah, it is, isn't it? I wonder what response they're going to find in Athens. Let's read on, verse uh, 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Interesting mission strategy. Chat with people who happen to be around you. A group of Eripicurean, that's very difficult to say, and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Anyone got that feeling already this morning? What is this babbler trying to say? Others said he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. When they took him and brought him to the meeting with the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing, <coughs> excuse, me, excuse me, but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So what does Paul find in Athens? He finds intellectual arrogance, or we might even say ignorance. And he looks about, and as he looks about that city, he discovers a city that is just a junkyard of idols. What a contrast between these cities. Jealousy, moving to eagerness, moving to intellectual ignorance. Now here's something for you to ponder. What would Paul discover if he came to Pharaoh today? What would he discover? One of those things, jealousy, eagerness, I pray so, maybe even intellectual arrogance or ignorance. Now, what we need to understand about uh, this city, Athens, is that it had a reputation that it was incredibly proud of. In the time when Paul is visiting there, Athens is like the center of, uh, of Greek culture and society. It's a vibrant city, it's an influential city, it's known for its history, it's known for its intellectual pursuits. Athens was a a city that was renowned for its philosophy. Uh, They loved the arts, they loved education. It was a melting pot of cultures because of where it was. And the religious landscape there in Athens is a smorgasbord of polytheism. What was it? A smorgasbord of polytheism. This idea that you can worship more than one God and you can do so with all integrity. And as a consequence of that, the city is awash with temples and statues and altars dedicated to these various Greek gods and Greek goddesses. Now what we need to say here is that the people of Athens were deeply devoted to their gods and therefore they engaged in all sorts of rituals and festivals to honor them. 
Now picture the scene here for a moment. The Apostle Paul is walking into that context. It is a brave individual who walks into that context and preaches there is no other way to be saved than by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a brave thing to do, to proclaim that Jesus is the only way to salvation when you're still in a city that celebrates that every single road, it doesn't matter what it is, will lead to God. Can you imagine the scene for a moment? Now, the people of Athens had a problem, and maybe it's our problem today as well. Maybe it's our problem because we live in a world where we go to the the small g God called Google and we live in an age of instant information. And the problem with the people in Athens is that they knew everything that was knowable except they did not know the most important thing. Athens did not know the one true God. Athens did not know how to deal with the problem of their sin. Athens had no idea how to find genuine internal shalom peace. They had no idea how to discover the hope of heaven. Now, here's a scary thought. It's possible to be highly educated and a deeply religious individual and still be utterly ignorant of the true and the living God. I find that really scary. So Paul finds himself here preaching Christ to philosophers, some of the most intellectually, academically trained minds of his day. And if I were Paul in this moment, I would be praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Get me out of this place, Lord. And in a sense, that's exactly what happens. Now, uh, the Spirit of God doesn't come and whisk Paul away somewhere else, but actually the Spirit of God inspires Paul and empowers him in this moment, and he preaches the most epic sermon ever. He stood there in the Areopagus, it's the the gathering place of legal and philosophical debate, and he preaches a genius sermon. And in his sermon, he's connecting with their culture whilst also sharing the gospel at the same time in a way that appealed to their love of logic and of the arts. Let's read on, verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, perhaps the first thing to notice about Paul's sermon here, uh, as he gets going with it, is he doesn't begin his sermon by denouncing all the Greek gods and rebuking Athens for their reliance upon idols. Did you notice that? Paul's message is not, turn or burn. His message is not, God hates your debaucherous lifestyles. They're an abomination to him. Now, that might have been true, but Paul doesn't start there. Instead, Paul begins by meeting them where they're at and appealing to their general interest in spiritual things. And he even honors their devotion, even if that devotion is misplaced. And I think there's a learning point for us here as we think about what it means to share this good news of Jesus with others. You know, the best way to reach our family and our friends and our town is not to tell them necessarily that we are right and they are wrong. Do you know what I mean? 
Now, if you spend two minutes talking to almost anybody who's a not yet Christian, who hasn't yet come to faith, you're almost certain to hear a big, long list of complaints they'll have about Christians. And I can almost guarantee you at the top of that list, there'll be two things. It doesn't take long for non-Christians to tell you how much they hate the way Christians judge other people. We can be really good, can't we, at telling the world what we're against and very slow to proclaim what it is that we are for. (laughs) And then, of course, there's the the H problem, isn't there? The hypocrisy issue. Sometimes we can be so concerned about the specks in other people's eyes that we don't notice there's a massive plank in our own eyes. I know this to be true of my own life. It's far easier to tell someone else that they're a hypocrite than it is to admit that you're one. And as much as I hate it, I am a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite. My walk doesn't always match my talk. And you know what? That's why the grace of God is so precious to me. Without the grace of God, I am not stood here today, I can assure you. Sanctification is a process that never ends. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who God wants me to be either, but Christ is at work in me and he's doing a good work that one day he will bring to completion. And do you know what? Here's what I've discovered. The more humility I add to my words, the smaller the gap is between who I say I am and who I really am. And all of a sudden, my non-Christian family and friends are more willing to listen to what I have to say. We have to swap our hypocrisy, it seems to me, with some humility. So Paul's sermon in the Areopagus doesn't start from a a position of condemnation. He first gets their attention by speaking about the unknown God. Now, there are loads of theories out there as to what Paul was referring to when he spoke about this unknown God. But one common explanation is that because the Greeks had so many gods, they wanted to ensure they didn't offend any of the gods that they did know about uh, or that they didn't yet know about. So they constructed altars to unknown gods as a kind of catch-all. It's like an insurance policy. Now, whatever the case, Paul sensed that these Athenian uh, Jews here were acknowledging that when it came to spiritual matters, they didn't know all that there was to know after all. Paul is recognizing here that there might just therefore be a God, an unknown God, who they've never known or understood. So Paul says to them, let me tell you about him. You know, you can put your faith and you can put your trust in him. And Paul's message is so simple. First, he proclaims the one true creator God who made all things. Secondly, he says, unlike all the Greek gods who have got their own little temples, this one true God is transcendent and he lives in a totally different realm. And then thirdly says, the one true God doesn't need a building to live in and actually he doesn't need anything from us at all. He's not dependent on us in any way, shape or form. In fact, we are dependent upon him for everything that we know and have. And then listen to what Paul says next as he reveals God's intent for the whole of humanity. And with this, I head towards a close. Verse 26. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, quoting poetry. So Paul is saying here, look, 
the creator God has a purpose for us, and God's greatest desire for our lives is that we would discover that purpose. Paul is saying our purpose in life can be fully realized by seeking after God and by finding him because he can be found and by entering into a faith relationship with him. He's not far from us. Why? Because he wants us to find him. God wants us to find him. In fact, Paul's big point is that God has predetermined several things, our time in history, the geographical boundaries within which we exist, and the relationships that we enjoy. Ponder that thought for just a moment. God has predetermined the geographical boundaries within which you live. He's predetermined the relationships within which you exist and you enjoy. He's determined your time in history. It's not by surprise to God that you're alive in 2023. Why has he done all of those things? So that we will have the greatest possible opportunity of coming into relationship with him. There's a really big, long theological word that captures that reality. Wow! The God of the universe, the creator God, what a mind-blowing thought, has done absolutely everything and arranged everything so that you will have the greatest opportunity of coming into relationship with him. Paul is saying God does not want us to exist knowing an unknown God, but he wants us to exist knowing the knowable, relatable God who Paul is proclaiming to the people of Athens. So it's not by chance that you're sitting here at Waypoint Church today in 2023 listening to this message. Take a look at them with these people sat around you. God has organized this for you so that you will have the greatest possible opportunity of doing what? Of coming into relationship with the creator God through Jesus. Relationship with God is the reason for our existence. What a thought. Now, given the genius of Paul's sermon, you might think that we're about to hear that repeated refrain that comes throughout Acts. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the followers, or some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Paul's sermon is so profound. The message is so great, and yet in response, some people sneered. Other people said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Just a few followed. You know, what we learn from this is we cannot be responsible for the responses of others when we share the good news with them. Their response will be their response. But we can be responsible for how we respond to Jesus today. He set up your time in history, 2023. He set up the geographical boundaries within which you live, Fairham, surrounding area. 
and he set up the relationships that you enjoy. Why? So that you will have the greatest possible opportunity to know him, to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. And I want to ask you this morning, can I invite the band to come and join us? I want to ask you this morning, how will you respond to this good news? Will you be like the Thessalonians? Will you respond with some kind of agitated jealousy? Will you respond like the people of Athens, educated in ignorance, even arrogance about the things of God, satisfied to know there is a God, but he's unknown to me? I can't know him intimately. Or will your response today be like that of the Bereans, with noble expectation, with spiritual hunger? They pursue the things of God, and they desire to understand this teaching that Paul was bringing. We're going to respond today. I don't know how many times you've become a Christian. I think I've become a Christian about 2,000 times. And I want to invite a response this morning, which might be a first-time commitment to Jesus. If you don't know him today, and somehow through my babbling today, you've understood that there's a God who loves you, there's a Savior called Jesus who's made a way for you, who can enable you to be in relationship with God for the forgiveness of your sins, maybe today's the day that you make a commitment. Why not today? It's a good day. But I wonder for you this morning whether today's the day too to make a fresh commitment to Jesus. Tell Jesus again afresh this morning, I love you. I delight in walking in relationship with you. Give me a Berean heart that my heart's desire will be to walk more deeply with you. If you're able, can I encourage you to stand with me? Just invite you this morning, if you feel able to, and please don't feel coerced or manipulated into this in any way, shape, or form. Just hold out your hands this morning, ready to receive. I'm going to pray a really simple prayer that you can make yours today, whether you're praying this prayer for the first time to trust Jesus or whether you're praying this prayer for the 2,000th time. When we have hands that are open, we can receive the gifts that God loves to give to us. Let's pray this prayer. You might just want to pray it in the quietness of your own heart. Lord Jesus, I love you. I believe that you are Lord, that you are Savior. And I commit my life to you today. I choose to follow you as my Lord, as my Savior, as my forever friend. And I receive your grace for my forgiveness. I believe in my heart and I pray you'll help me to declare with my lips that Jesus is Lord. Lord, we love you. Lead us on into ever greater depth in our relationship with you, we pray in Jesus' name.